what has given me real hope out of that meeting um, is one, that many businesses that were there were really far ahead of policymakers. Have re were really there to announce quite dramatic, high-cost, um, transitionary programs. So turning around a business is like turning around the Titanic. Um, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and a lot of uh, good brains and a lot of strategies. And a lot of big companies were there um, actually driving forward real change, wanting to reduce uh, emissions. Hey you, that is Joanna Sullivan. We had a super interesting talk about the power of climate activist movements, how a year of action until COP27 will have to unfold, helping indigenous minorities with no voice to get a seat at the table, and how to stay optimistic in these turbulent times filled with uncertainty. Joanna is an activist an expert on how to make people and organizations take action to solve the climate crisis. In essence, a real power woman. The world would truly be better off with more people like her. Let's get to it. So, hi Joanna, welcome to the uh, Replanet podcast. How are you today? Great to be here. Thank you very much. I'm good. I'm good today. Uh, we're all on a bit of a COP26 hangover, but uh, generally speaking, the sun is shining in Brussels, so I'm good to go. Nice. How are you? Nice. I'm very good as well. Thank you. The sun is not shining in, in Scandinavia. It's uh, The rain is pouring down, so um, so I'm, I'm glad that I could uh, meet up with you instead. <laughs> that, saving Great. my day. So... Um, Joanna, you, um, we, uh, we're, we're, I think uh, I speak for both me and, and, and the listeners that we're super curious about uh, you and your story and what you're doing, uh, your take on, on uh, the results from uh, COP26 and, and all of that. So um, why don't we dig into it? Sure, let's get going. There's like tons to talk about, tons of ideas, tons of... Um... Yeah, I mean, we're in, a, we're in a bit of a global transition, or at least that's the way I see it right now, green transition, digital transition, um, and more of an awakening in society. I mean, some people compare this moment in time to the Renaissance um, 500 years ago when there was a bit of a moment of enlightenment. Um, but of course, we get it before we get into that enlightenment, then there's a bit of a back dragging um, of the dinosaurs who want to kind of bring us back to a world of fossil fuels, combustion engines and populism. Um, but despite that, hopefully um, kind of blip, um, we are as a world moving towards more equity when there's more justice, everybody's rights are respected, um, everybody's seen as equal um, and, um, and a kind of a multilateral one world view that we're all in on this planet together mother earth and we may as well get on and make sure that we can all live in um in peace and harmony i'm a bit of a i guess a hippie at heart <laughs> which I, I think we need more of those but um you told me during the uh, the pre-call we had that there there was this time in your your career when that's pretty much the same time as you had kids as well that you sort of awoke to gender social and, and environmental injustice and, and working for the good of the planet and society became your purpose. Uh, 
And also those global movements for environmental and social rights were coming together in the late 90s and sort of, can you tell a bit about these exciting times and the powers that were suddenly unleashed and how it all affected you? Sure. No, it was, uh, I mean, it seems a long time ago. I guess it is history already. That's a crazy thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of my own uh, personal journey, my own awakening to these <clears throat> issues and the world we live on and the need for us all to kind of um, be more creative in terms of how we solve these issues, um, I guess there are a couple of moments like one, I mean, going really back in time to my childhood, I suppose, I was brought up in a small um, farm, one of the first uh, organic farms in the UK, although it wasn't defined as such. Uh, my father rejected pesticides. He showed me The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which is a kind of Bible of um, predictions, which actually all have come true in terms of how chemicals could ruin uh, farmland, biodiversity, birds, soil, um, and also, um, yeah, climate kind of make a bit of a mess of things. So um, I was a small girl uh, with four big brothers um, and I was, um, I really enjoyed being outside. This is how children used to be raised. We were just told to go outside, right? <laughs> and get on with things, never to be bored. And um, so, yeah, so I spent my time, um, my favorite things to do were kind of lying in the long grass, looking at the, uh, the clouds shifting across the skies or looking at the butterflies, the dragonflies, the skates across the water in the pond, a uh, big pond just in front of my house with covered in lily pads, frogs, frog spawn. And suddenly I realized one day that that was drying up and it had all died. And, and looking back in time, that was the moment when the common agricultural policy was introduced and then the local farmers all jumped on that bandwagon and started just kind of mass spraying um, around the land. So for me, that was kind of a moment that had stuck in my mind as a child. But then, you know, you get on, you have fun as a teenager, you start to work, you know, I wanted to work on an international level. And then when I had, um, when I brought, I was, had twins and I came and brought them back from the hospital um, when they were bored and I suddenly noticed that there was a car pollution, polluting um, all over them. I suddenly noticed that people were giving me, um, you know, these kind of sweet smelling ducks that they give, which are actually uh, full of endocrine disrupting chemicals, phthalates they're called. Um, and I suddenly started, you know, I don't know if it, People are parent, I mean, not everybody's a parent, but you kind of have a flashback to your own childhood of what's really important uh, in terms of values. And, and that kind of childhood I had for myself, I really wanted for them. So I kind of figured, okay, I'm going to go work for a better world for them, um, shifting from the corporate world to um, NGO campaign world. And it was a really exciting moment to answer your question. Um, it was at the time of the battles of Seattle. I don't know if you remember that uh, and any... The audience, this was of the late uh, 90s, so just uh, at the turn of the century, just at the turn of the millennial, um, when um, the new millennials were just, I guess, being born actually at that time. But it was, it was a time when there was this sudden movement against or an awareness that globalization, which had suddenly been, but, uh, come, been unleashed then, could cause real harm to environment and, and social uh, justice in terms of people's communities, livelihoods, and so forth. So there was a huge energy um, on the street. For, in Europe as well, it was just kind of on the 10 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So there's a real hope and drive for better democracy and a kind of real hope and drive for more accountability in the world, given this a perceived threat then of globalization. I mean, 20 years later, 
the predictions were true. But um, going back then, um, I started working immediately for um, for NGO campaigns for uh, providing choice on genetically modified food. Um, um, to make sure that consumers were aware to, to ban um, dangerous chemicals in babies' toys, um, to campaign for climate change. And these campaigns, this was the beginning of the NGO, kind of joined up thinking in Brussels. So um, it was really great fun to build campaigns, coalitions um, across kind of a pan-European level, um, and also to, to really start to have influence um, actually in global and European um, policymaking, um, raising awareness of some of these issues. You know, it was after on the tail of the get rich quick kind of 80s. Um, and then there was a kind of, uh, a, a, kind of a, a drive of liberal, liberalization in the 90s. And suddenly the truth is that a lot of unions, a lot of environmentalists, a lot of social activists, they knew that suddenly indigenous peoples were being threatened as deforestation was happening. They, uh, but they weren't the media channels. There wasn't the internet back then to even uh, show it. So it was a great time in history to really, um, um, to really shift the dial in terms of who had the power at the table from the big corporates. We tried to kind of eke away at the corporate power and have an equal seat at the table for, for NGOs um, to policymakers, uh, uh, to businesses with, with policymakers. So that in a nutshell, but I could continue. Yeah, uh, but you, it's, it's, it's kind of the, the list of what you've been doing is pretty amazing. You've, you've moved, in, moved into the center of EU politics and, and I tried to find out the campaigns you've been a part of and, and it seems like you've worked with everything from sustainable aviation to Green Deal strategies to health risk for, for, from unsafe foods, medicines, social conditions, you know, workers in, in global consumer supply chains and sustainable agriculture and the list goes on. How, uh, how how can you sort of do that? It's, you, you've, you've made so many different things. You know, um, I think I'm a creative, actually, even though I studied political science, um, like law and economics, like a serious um, course in a way, degree and also master's. Um, when I started working in politics, I realized um, quite soon after working, my first job was in the European Parliament, um, I realized quite soon that the power of communication to affect change, because most policymakers then wrote huge documents that nobody, I mean, almost deliberately designed to be opaque, using long words and long sentences, um, kind of this intellectual approach. So by, by, by design, uh, exclusive and, and excluding people. And I kind of felt even then, what was important was to bring people um, into the mix. Um, so um, when I think about campaigns, and also I did a couple of campaigns even back then, uh, which um, are not included in the list, you know, the campaign um, to um, engage then British voters in the European election campaign in 1989, and nobody wanted to do it, so I took that on. I mean, and I realized then it's about understanding what your audience is. It's kind of the art, the basics of communication. I mean, so policy, if you're going to affect policy change and, and do campaigns, it's kind of the base, getting the base. If you understand the basics of communication and you have, have insights and the kind of talent, I suppose, for that, um, understanding what, where the audience is and, and trying to figure out how to, to move them 
um, where where you want to take them. And, and part of that, big part of that is informing them. A big part of that is understanding what this kind of movable middle is, um, like any political campaign in a way. I mean, there's some people who are real, you're really your friends, some people you're just never going to get. But like, who are those middle ground of people that if they knew, they would actually really care? So, I mean, I think that's the essence of all these campaigns. It's trying to find that kind of golden nugget of, of care, of caring. What is it that's going to get people either to get out on the street or to, to write to their politicians or to, um, um, to, to, to click on a button to join in a, a campaign online um, or to actually become local activists? Um, most people, if we think about mainstream media, most people, well, and also most people just don't have time, frankly, to get involved in campaigns. They're doing their job, do, they're trying to pay the bills, frankly. So if we think about most people, most people, if they get, if they had the chance, of course, they'd want a better world for themselves and their kids. Um, but they kind of get in a track, in a silo, at a job, and they don't have time to think. So bringing policy to people, I think, is a central tenet of all of these campaigns. And, you know, I love diversity. I love new challenges. I love new issues. So I feel like deep diving into every new issue as somebody who's a non-technical expert, um, it gives me like a little power in a way because you can see the big picture. And also, you know, you can see how these issues are joined up together because they're not all in silos. You know, if you talk about sustainable agriculture, it has huge impact on our climate. It has huge impact on uh, the global south. It has huge impact on deforestation. Um, it has huge impact on supply chains and human rights. I mean, that's just one issue. So you start off with any campaigning issue and all these campaigns are designed to affect policy change. I mean, they're partly, of course, within that you need to raise awareness, you have to build coalitions, but essentially designed to affect policy change. And, you know, and the great thing about working in Brussels, um, in most instances, although I work on the international policy level too, but Brussels or the EU has taken on in a way a kind of um, a leadership role in some of these areas of sustainability. Um, and frankly, if you, if you can achieve change in EU policy, that can have global implications because obviously a lot of other countries are trading with the EU. So if the standards are raised here in the EU, then they necessarily there's pressure for countries around the world to raise their standards. And, you know, so, it, I mean, yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, I'm doing more, even more campaigns than even the list that you read out. Um, uh, and, um, and I particularly like um, the intersection in today's world between climate change and like democracy and social justice, especially gender equity. Because I feel like if we can inch forward on all of those, we can really reach tipping points where we create a new horizon. And I think what you're saying is really interesting because I, I, I do believe that the, the, the pe people are not evil. People just don't have time. People don't have perhaps the interest. They have, you know, other things, their, their families uh, to, to focus on. So bringing this up from a sort of only rational, logical level to, to the, the level where you get emotionally invested in it is, I guess, a, a pivotal point in, in making it um, available and appealing to, to the masses of people. Yeah, I mean, you're so right, you know, I mean, it's not about good or evil, it's not some moral crusade either, it's about um, people only know what they know, 
um, and they only know what they've been exposed to. And not everybody's had the amazing fortune to be born, you know, in the in a in a in a country which has um, full educate full and free education, um, has the chance to travel, has the chance to work in these environments. Um, and if we think about going back to, I just had a, a mention earlier, the mainstream media. I mean, a lot of the media in many countries, people read um, stories which are, are not the full truth and they're not the full set of facts and it's somebody's angle. And, and ma- media over time has become a bit sensationalist too. So it's a, bit of a, it's a lot about drama and, and, and negativity and, and uh, horror and <laughs> bad news and fear. And so it's not very exciting for people to read anyway. <laughs> Um, and when they do read it, they don't feel very comfortable um, about reading it. So, you know, I, I'd love a, a world where the, the, the news is much more constructive. I mean, of course, bad stuff happens, but, you know, what can we do about it? What is the government doing about it? What are EU leaders doing about it? What are international leaders? What business? You know, what, where are the solutions to give people hope? Because um, I think there's a real issue, actually, in education as well, because most education systems that were designed 100 years ago, so you think about you know, all these different departments of chemistry and physics and biology, I mean, you know, all these different things which aren't even joined together. Most people don't even realize how does it fit with their lives, actually? What does it actually mean? (laughs) What is the meaning attached to it and how is it relevant? Um, So I think making things relevant for people and, you know, the uh, civil society, which is the kind of the term used for all of the NGOs or the, the organizations working for you know, to improve society and environment and climate and so forth, you know, they've become much more um, uh, invested in um, over time. Um, a lot of businesses have set up foundations to support them. There's a lot more investment. There's a lot more awareness actually at the local level of the importance and power and, and, um, and uh, yeah, the, the, the essential nature of having these groups in civil, in society, which are working for the common good and especially if we compare it against all of the um you know the the horror years of trump and the horror years of brexit i mean there are some forces out there which are um very negative for and at the end of the day everybody wants a good life everybody wants to have a happy healthy um family in their local community but the way society has been developed so far especially with the ish the influence of globalization and extreme capitalism it's kind of based on this idea that you know you can basically screw somebody over to get rich so you know I mean at the end of the day I mean isn't it about um, enabling everybody to have peace in their lives peace and harmony and um, a kind of a, dig- a life of dignity and that doesn't take that much if, if we share out the wealth and there's enough wealth in the world and that's another that's another um, topic of conversation. Mm. Yeah, I guess one of the, the the more recent works you've been doing that would uh, really uh, qualify to qualify into that is the EU Green Deal, which um, with the overarching aim to to make Europe climate neutral by by twenty fifty. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing with that because that's super relevant, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is a really transformative um, policy program that we should all be really proud that um, those of us um, living in Europe and around the world, because it's going to have global influence, it is having global influence, that the EU has finally pulled away from a kind of business as usual mindset to uh, an awakening um, of the transitions, the essential transformation that needs to happen, not just uh, from an ecological and climate perspective, also kind of digital and also kind of global diplomacy 
Um, so the uh, the Green Deal, um, I mean, I was working on this before it was announced. Um, I was working with a, an organization um, or several organizations to try and influence the content of the Green Deal, kind of how far it should go, what should its scope be, should it be purely climate focused, should it be kind of wider, should it include things like uh, deconsumption or sufficiency of materials or how much do we need to keep buying because our economies um, are based on growth. And the interesting thing about the outcome of all of that work is that it's actually quite a 360 perspective um, um, green deal. It's an economic um, revival plan or transition plan. It's an ecological transition plan. And it also has what they call just transition uh, principles built in, which means social justice um, built in. Because of course we can't transition overnight. There's gonna be winners and losers. It's gonna, there are gonna be conflicts. So how do we make sure that transition is smooth and that people um, who work in coal mines, people who are considered working in kind of industries or sectors, which, which are not part of the, the clean green future that we envisage, you know, to make sure that they're all included. I mean, not just in terms of the jobs, but also imagine all of the people living in cities or, you know, the people who are living in disadvantaged um, areas or, or situations, they don't have time to engage in politics. But, you know, at the end of the day, the Green Deal is very much, it's not just a kind of top down, it's more kind of a bottom up, a grassrootsy kind of approach to policy making as well. So if you cannot get everybody involved and enabled at the local level in local communities. I mean, literally, it's in every street, in every local community, in every local commune or local council, um, the decisions are being made that are making this uh, vision a reality. So, yeah, so my work um, involved, um, um, yeah, getting a lot of people together, essentially, to think in different ways and to think about the intersectionality and also specifically about the communication of this um, to not just to citizens by the EU, but also by the European Commission, because they're the, the kind of the lead institution in this, but how to make these ideas meaningful and relevant to every national government and regional governments and local governments. So, you know, it had to be a win-win-win, actually, because if you're going to make any transition, it's not easy because you're looking finally at every every policy and how they intersect. And, you know, that's like rebuilding a society. It's kind of utopian vision, which I really love, <laughs> that thinking and that work. Um, but not many people, I have the good fortune to get paid for that, and not many people actually... Um, are able to think like that with that blend of kind of, because you need to be kind of a wild um, um, innovator in a way um, and imagining all kinds of situations um, and then trying to kind of backtrack and figure out well, what needs to happen to make that a reality and to make sure that um, with 27 now EU member states, um, of course, we're very different, so many different people, so many different stakeholders, so many different interests, how to bring that along in a smooth way to make sure that everybody is, um, you know, to create a society of well-being and to make sure that the process is smooth and peaceful. You do strike me as this um, bottom-up uh, activist uh, trying to rally people uh, around these really uh, important uh, topics. Could you, um, you know, the, the, the French newspaper Le Monde, <laughs> 
I, I don't speak French, but uh, I guess that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> they called you, uh, they defined you as the pioneer of ethical lobbying in Brussels. Can you tell us in which sense uh, lobbying can be, be ethical and still represent corporations' interests and, and uh, sort of how, how business strategy and the protect and, uh, protection of the environment can really fit together to be this win-win situation that you talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, yeah, I was really um, happy that the Le Monde uh, cited me. I mean, I've been doing this work as an independent consultant for 15 years now. Lobbying, you know, can work for people as well as for um, big business. I mean, traditionally, it's known as something which is really like stacks of cash behind it, stacks of resources. But the truth is, lobbying and advocacy and ethical advocacy um, um, needs to be, I mean, is a fundamental part of a participatory democracy. Uh, and this is the kind of democracy we have these days. And if you think about the past, all we were expected to do as citizens uh, was vote. That was pretty much it, a representative democracy. We were required to just turn up every few years, vote, and everything would be fine. Um, we know now that um, it doesn't work that way, that then we need to be as citizens present and, 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 and advocating for what we need as people um, more often. And this, so this uh, system of participatory democracy means that we have to have um, a strong civil society and a strong voice for uh, people, individuals, um, ecologists, um, activists, um, non-experts, um, uh, at the table. And, and so my idea of ethical advocacy is, is to, I mean, I only choose to work with um, big, with, with companies um, that are really committed to transformation. So they come to me for all the hard truths, <laughs> for the things they never really wanted to hear. And, but they kind of trust me to tell them. And I, I also say, well, this is how you can do it. This is some ideas of how can you, you can get there. And essentially my ideas uh, revolve around listening um, to activists, um, sitting down with them to hear what they have to say and figuring out together what needs to happen and then a time frame for that and a kind of big picture narrative or framing of where they're going. Um, I mean, I don't do the metrics of sustainability and measuring everything, but, you know, a company needs, you know, in a way companies are like personalities, they're like people. And so what do they really represent? Um, and what do they really stand for? Um, and so companies used to be run by um, accountants and now they tend to be run a few activist CEOs out there. Um, but there are more people uh, running uh, businesses and CEOs now who are kind of more purposeful. So they kind of feel they want to have a business which investors want to invest in. Um, the customers want to buy from, the employees want to work for. So they're really much more conscious, of at least the forward-facing businesses, that they need to walk the talk, not just make commitments for a transition, you know, to move away from fossil fuels, because that's the basic problem in society, that there's $400 billion, uh, billion a year given by national governments to subsidize the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry. Imagine if we just put a part of that away um, that would be a big equalizer. And if we put a part of that into education and renewables and nature-based solutions at protecting primary forests, um, at, you know, we would change the world overnight. So there's a lot of vested interest. So um, ethical advocacy is about promoting kind of a level playing field for the sustainability corporate champions. 
um, as well as advocating for, on behalf of uh, coalitions of NGOs and civil society, because I work with plenty of those organizations too on different issues and often try to combine those issues to affect more change. And also actually for um, the UN uh, agencies, I work for UN agencies as well as for um, European institutions like the European Commission, also like yesterday for the European Committee of Regions, um, running a workshop for, um, for uh, 40 um, young um, elected mayors and councillors from across Europe uh, talking about what recommendations, kind of guiding them to recommendations for what it means to have, what do what their local people need um, for, in terms of resilient and inclusive um, um, society, um, and as well as kind of what do they need for the digital transformation. So, you know, the advocacy happens, government to commission, European commission, from European commission to um, global governments around the world, to the UN. Advocacy is something that is done um, um, not just by big business, um, it's done within institutions, by institutions, uh, by governments, uh, by people, and by economic operators as well. So making sure that's ethical, so that's about, and the ethical part of it is about you know, all working towards changing the world and changing the system um, for better. Because you know we're at a point of history where all this stuff needs to come together for to create this system change. That's what um, some of the academics call it. Mm. And, and I guess one question that me and, and perhaps some listeners are sitting with is, those, those 400 oil and, and gas lobbyists at the, at the COP26. Oh, my God. That's crazy that's still happening. Isn't that just so nuts? I mean, really. In, in which way is that um, useful? I, 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 guess, I, I guess there's like this imbalance between get it, the, their voice in, in, the, in this and, and uh, the, um, how much we listen to them compared to how much we should listen to the real experts on climate change. Yeah, but I mean, the, 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 the sinister thing is we don't even know we're listening to them. Um, and you know, there are 400 present with accreditation at COP26 uh, last week, but the truth is they've been working behind the scenes for a long time, of course, to prepare uh, for that meeting. Um, and. Uh, lobbying governments around the world on the need. And of course, using the big argument of energy security, if you switch to renewables, it's all gonna go crazy. And therefore bumping up the price of oil and gas, you know, just at the moment where there's this transition going on to freak everybody out. So, you know, to create chaos. Um, so, you know, that these are these are massive vested interests and big boys, you know, essentially very, very male, uh, I guess. Um, but it's it's a kind of symbol of the patriarchy that, you know, if you can boss everybody around enough, um, you can get your way. Um, so a world different to that is is imagining that, you know, the people, the indigenous peoples, uh, the women, the, the, the people who are disadvantaged, the people in the global south, they all have an equivalent voice at the table um, when when it comes to decisions which are going to affect all of our lives. What, I mean, I mean. The science on climate is completely crazy now. Um, the time is really running out. Um, and I hope now there's going to be, you know, we talk about a year of action up to these sustainable development goals being achieved by 2030. We're really on a year of action now between COP26 and COP27. Um, and I would like to see, I mean, we had a one mention at the COP26 of, of fossil fuels. Um, I mean, 
one mention. Imagine the first time ever this has been mentioned in um, 25 years of uh, climate summits, uh, which is quite shocking, actually. Um, and the fact that people don't know that all of these guys are there lobbying behind the scenes and accredited, uh, it, it seems just such an anachronism in today's world when we're trying to move beyond that um, and if we're serious about that. So this year of action that we um, that we imagine right now um, needs to have a, a lot more um, transparency, a lot more exposure uh, of, of who is actually pulling the strings and who has the influence at the table. Um, and I think the um, I, I see I see um, uh, a kind of schism in the business community. Those companies still don't want to make the change for whatever reason. The CEOs are, are not visionary, sufficiently visionary. They fear stakeholders. They're in different kind of uh, environments where they just can't take decisions, or it's just too difficult. Um, and progressive companies who are actually kind of quite openly um, turning their backs on fossil fuels and redesigning their businesses away towards nature-based materials. Um, and so, of course, if you work with, you know, protecting primary forests um, pr and making sure that you can harvest kind of nature or in the same way as you harvest food, but obviously in a much more sustainable way than, than traditionally has been done. And we imagine that rolled out around the world immediately we just reduce a whole ton of pollution because essentially we just want to have a pollution-free world. Um, you know, we look back on images now. I just saw one yesterday, actually, on the, um, um, what do you call a steam train when they first started down? These mass in the factories, you know, 100 years ago, huge black smoke. Uh, and that was considered normal then. And, and we've moved so far um, away from that, but we have all these hidden invisible chemicals now um, surrounding us. Um, and so if we can then imagine, but we have to just move, move a bit quicker to go faster to, to get away um, from that, um, from these vested interests, essentially kind of unpick that much more transparency, much more accountability and really getting the business leaders who are really activists and, and, and forward thinking, um, also the sustainability pioneers to really speak out actually as activists, like they did on their kind of the Me Too movement or the, you know, all of those um, you know, on the on the on the issues of racism and the issues of LGBT. I mean, on the same way, we need company more company. I mean, many are doing so, but we need more and more to really stand up now and shift their business models. We already see massive amounts of investors deciding to shift into what they're investing in. So, I'm optimistic. You know, we have to stay optimistic because it's just there's it's tough when you're faced with this reality of of huge budgets and huge vested interests. And a lot of politicians um, are, um, are still too friendly, let's say, with, um, with, with, the, with the, um, the guys who have the biggest, uh, biggest budgets. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I imagine those dynamics you're talking about are at play, not just in, in energy, but also in, in transportation and in food and, and other important areas. So for, for someone who has been in this field fighting for this for such a long time, how does it feel like what, what's the, the feeling you're left with after COP26? Because the, the results from it seems like writing a, a pretty bad, getting a pretty bad score on an exam, but still being allowed to pass. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of feel like when you're, you've invested your life in trying to get this change, um, 
it's slightly nauseous um, that not much has changed. The same people at the table. Um, there's a lot of people um, in the activist world who are just totally exhausted. And you also look at people like Gresha Thunberg, who's been an incredible motivator for young people around the world. So many people have taken their time out of their lives to really put so much pressure on governments for this. So you kind of feel a bit sick that um, it's still the same old story, really. However, Indigenous peoples were, for the first time, pretty much invited to speak. There were more representatives in the Global South, although still very, very um, uh, underrepresented. Um, for the first time ever, you have coal mentioned in the, uh, in the outcome. For the first time ever, you have fossil fuel subsidies mentioned in the outcome. Um, massively disappointing because 100 um, million, which was committed uh, years ago to support the global south or the vulnerable communities in their transition to climate mitigation adaptation, they still haven't coughed that up. And it's just basically the cost of one, I think, one military aircraft like that I saw falling in the sea yesterday by one of the EU governments. So it's not that much money and it's supposed to be gathered by all of the countries. So um, it is disappointing that um, there is the money, but they don't, it's not committed in that way. So, but at the same time, um, I feel we have to be, what has given me real hope out of that meeting um, is one, that many businesses that were there were really far ahead of policymakers, have re were really there to announce quite dramatic, high-cost, um, transitionary programs. So turning around a business is like turning around the Titanic. Um, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and a lot of uh, good brains and a lot of strategies. And a lot of big companies were there. Um, actually driving forward real change, wanting to reduce uh, emissions. And, and we think about the COP, it's not just about energy. I mean, the, the meeting was a lot about energy, but it's about food as well. Food has a 30% of, of climate of emission impact is from the food sector. Um, so energy is just a, a small part of it. We think about manufacturing, that's another huge part of it as well. Um, so there are other sectors that, um, uh, that can be, and, and of course we need to think about not just cutting the emissions, but also providing this healthy sinking environment in the world, which is a lot of trees and a lot of healthy soil. Um, a lot of, for example, in the, um, in the cities, which are now designed out of concrete, which is emitting carbon all the time, there's um, a CO2 free carb uh, concrete that exists. Imagine cities that could all serve as, climate, as uh, carbon sinks. So it's not just about cutting emissions, it's also about creating a healthy world that can absorb the emissions that we put out. So I'm optimistic because there were business leaders there really making and announcing dramatic change and pushing governments to go further. And I'm optimistic that there were so many young people and that that protest that happened, uh, I think the midweek, uh, the midway between the summit, they didn't put the, uh, the Greta Thunberg, she invited the young indigenous leaders from around the world to lead that process. And I think that's the point. It's like we, in, in terms of society, the terms of young people, there's no difference between white, black, North, South, they're all in it together and they're massively supporting and putting forward enabling um, disadvantaged and, and uh, until now, um, 
hidden or, or uh, people who haven't been given a seat or a voice at the table, um, they have their voices are there um, front and center now. So um, young people, citizens, I mean, because it wasn't just young, they had a lot of parents there, grandparents, like people. I'm optimistic because of people and I'm op optimistic because of some business leaders that are really um, acting as people, as parents and grandparents and really bringing their whole self to the office and thinking beyond profit to their own purpose and their own legacy. Yeah, I think there was this one uh, grandmother who took the bike all the way from Sweden to, to Glasgow. <laughs> so uh, wow. show her support. And, and I, I guess you really have to cling to, to these areas of hope. Otherwise, you, you would go crazy in... in Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, exactly. You have to, I mean, I, I stay optimistic because like that's as, you know, I remember writing a little note or a little sum up of how I felt about the COP and actually I just um, scrapped my negativity, which there was so much of, of course, and just like, okay, we just have to keep going. Like we won't be defeated. We just have to find new angles and new tactics and new approaches. But, you know, we have to, we have to be celebrate the tiny achievements which are, are made. It's not enough, that's for sure. But We need to constantly be reminded that we are making progress, that there is more equity in the world, um, and that we've come a long way from the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, look at the Green Deal. I mean, look at some of the countries around the world that have amazing uh, women prime ministers like um, Jacinta Arun in New Zealand, and um, we have um, in Europe as well, like really strong people with kind of joined up thinking, um, thinking about, um, able to conceive of the new world that we're entering, um, able to bring the people together, the experts and, the, and others that need to be there. Because, I mean, the truth is about this new world that we're coming into, this new kind of era, is we can't any of us do it alone. We have to kind of reach out, collaborate um, across parties, uh, political parties, across from business to NGO. I mean, some, a lot of the work I'm doing now these days is is about coalition building. Um, so bringing together, you know, one of the coalitions I work, I've developed or built is um, uh, bringing together the, the Secretary General of the European Youth Forum, for example, like representing the voice of all of the youth together with some sustainability leading businesses um, lead, and, um, you know, scientists from the European Environment Agency. So, so these people who can bring the science, um, business and activism together I mean, together they can come up with the answers to help policymakers, because frankly, it's complicated for policymakers, you know? This is not easy, it's really complicated. So if everybody involved, the lady you just mentioned, the grandmother cycling from Sweden, everybody can do some small thing to get involved. It's just not activism, it's, I mean, it, whatever you choose to buy or not to buy, you know, that's making um, a statement as well. Um, you know, the way you choose to raise your children, the way you choose to celebrate uh, Christmas or whatever holiday, um, you know, is it piling the house full of presents or is it doing things more meaningful? I mean, I kind of feel, I'm, but I'm always optimistic. Um, I kind of feel that the COVID, the lockdown, you know, made people appreciate a bit more nature and the simple stuff in life and family and community. But I really hope that's kind of will be um, enshrined, let's say, in the new kind of policy uh, moving forward. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> for, for someone who has worked with so many different aspects of climate change, I, I know um, food is something that you've zoomed in on. And uh, as you, you said yourself here, that it's, it stands, food stands for 30% or like one third of, of all the greenhouse gas emissions. And I guess you have 
much more insights into how these things work. So that, that's why I'm curious and, and I'm going to ask this. Uh, what are the mechanics behind uh, the people setting the agenda for COP26, the people who you know, make the PowerPoint slides and decide what are we going to talk about? How are they able to rule this out of the agenda so that you talk extremely little about something that contributes to a third of all greenhouse gas emissions? How is that possible? Well, I mean, it's nothing really surprises me in policy making these days, frankly, I think I've seen it all. But I think it's this kind of splinkered silo thinking in a way. They think about climate and they think about energy. Um, and they don't think really about forests even. It's the first time deforestation was mentioned as well. And it wasn't even mentioned in the final document. It was mentioned as a kind of side issue, um, a pledge between an agreement between like 20 or 30 uh, countries kind of outside. I mean, that's really important as it is, but it wasn't mentioned. It's not mentioned in the actual text. So the way they see it is that the climate, the COP meetings are all about um, um, the energy mix. And they don't think of food as part of that. And they don't think about forests, the, as I mentioned, the absorption capacity of the emissions as part of that. Um, they think about it, and probably that's because of the corporate influence, I suppose, over time. They kind of think about it as switching um, from um, switching towards growing towards uh, renewable industries, renewable energy, and technologies to capture carbon. And this is what they talk a lot about. But we have that technology. This is trees. You know, we have that already. We don't need like math. So in a way, it's a little bit um, skewed. But nonetheless, um, I mean, there are obviously a lot. There's a lot more to it. It's kind of how to trading, yeah, how the, the, the trading um, uh, of uh, carbon credits between countries. So the kind of the mechanics of kind of how you reduce emissions, because ultimately COP is about the countries agreeing to reduce, setting targets that the countries then try to think, well, how can we reduce our emissions? And there's a whole variety of ways doing that, electric cars or, or cycling or um, switching to renewable energy. So the, the way, the how of getting there is really left up to the all of the countries because they're all sovereign, independent countries around the world. So, I mean, we have to kind of appreciate that it's actually a hard job to bring this whole global, uh, all of the countries together. But the people writing it are basically, um, it's based around the first meeting, the initial convention of the parties was set up to set climate targets, reduce uh, green uh, greenhouse gas emissions and reduce global warming. So it's basically about target setting and identifying areas which um, countries can use to reduce that um, those emissions and, and very much focused around energy. Um, as you say, food was not even on the agenda. It was on a lot of the side uh, meeting agendas by business um, and uh, activists as well. Um, and deforestation, deforestation um, was there because a lot of the people from the global south, the indigenous peoples, their forests are being ripped apart to, um, to, to, to grow soy, which is fed to um, our cows and our pigs in Europe. Um, for our own diets. And most of us don't know that, of course, but, um, you know, there's been huge deforestation linked to EU uh, policy and sorry, EU business, the food we eat, EU consumer, uh, consumer goods, uh, food companies, um, the way they source their supplies. And of course, they should be responsible for that. And so there's a lot of supply chain issues to kind of figure out as well. Um, and a lot of that comes back to the same, as I mentioned before, transparency. If we know about this stuff, um, then it's easier to solve. But I think for the next, there has been 
there was quite a noise. And so will the next COP in 27, um, will it be focused on targets implementation or will it include food? Uh, because we have to bear in mind this year as well, um, because the UN also works in silos, um, there have been three big summits and all very interconnected. The first one was on biodiversity. Um, then there was a summit on food systems. And then we had the summit on climate. Of course, the three are massively interconnected. Um, and now, um, in terms of the process, the system is starting to um, integrate um, some of the outcomes of that of the biodiversity summit with the food summit into the next COP. Um, but whether they manage to do that because of all of the different interests, um, now in the food sector, of course, if you move from energy to food, there's always this vested interest that want to keep the, the but there is there is a, a movement of change. And also, you know, that's representing that's represented also about in terms of what we want to buy. Um, there's a big shift in amongst young people and also conscious kind of adults um, uh, or elders um, to to buy more kind of healthy food and to move away from process. But I think most people probably wouldn't even know when they buy a, a lamb chop or not really a lamb chop, but, you know, some where, you know, if they, that each, each sausage they're buying or each uh, piece of steak they're buying is actually representing cutting down a, a kind of thousand year old tree and, and uprooting a whole family. Um, I mean, the, the climate impact of that is enormous, um, let alone the social impact is just really horrific. And it's been really worse with Bolsonaro over the, over the time, but I really hope, yeah, I mean, there, there is that pressure building, but I'm just, you know, like all of these policy um, opportunities, what's the framework for discussion? So the UN has this COP framework all about energy. So how do they bring the food discussion together with the, uh, uh, the, the climate discussion? And frankly, the Green Deal is ahead of the game, the European level, because that integrates food. It totally recognizes that food is a real issue and a real contributor to, um, to global heating. Um, but it also recognizes that, um, you know, that, that it's also very much linked pe uh, pesticides with fossil fuels, with plastics, with the waste, zero waste. So the Green Deal is a really strong kind of global model for holistic thinking. A lot of countries are kind of looking at that as a kind of blueprint of how to tackle climate from a really a thorough kind of 360 perspective and not just honing in on energy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, it seems like a very, very, um, uh, a solution on a sort of a helicopter perspective, integrating everything. So, so, um, and also, uh, with, with more and more experts like, uh, Johan Rockström from Sweden being there at, at COP26 stating that, you know, for, for energy and transportation, we do have the solutions. We just have to do it. Now is the time to focus on nature-based solutions because we haven't paid enough attention to it. Uh, I think um, that's that's super interesting. And and you have you have also um, zoomed in on on deforestation um, going down to I think it was Argentina, right, to make uh, this short documentary called um, called The Single Dream. Can you tell us about? Yeah, I mean. The truth is that you can think about policy and do a lot of it at kind of global or UN or EU level where there's a lot of bringing different vested interests together, a bit like a chess game. Um, but when you get to see, to meet face-to-face -face people who are really um, on, the, on the front line of, you know, they're trying to stop 
huge bulldozers, huge tracts of land are being sold, um, motivated because the, you know there's a supply chain that there's a lot of people. It's hard to trace people through this supply chain, but ultimately it's, it's who's buying these products. And so huge areas of, of land. So I met, you know, this lady, I remember speaking to this lady called Gloria. She was like a mother like me. You know, basically all she was trying to do was continue her life in her, in her, in her village, in her town, um, where for years they've always lived and always grown amazing food in their market gardens, abundant market gardens with like fresh water and beautiful trees. And then, um, you know, the, now in the, in the next door, like just short um, distance away from her home is suddenly the, the abundant forest and then just like a whole desert um, where now when it rains, all of the land floods um, and, and floods of villages, all of the people were driven out from that area. It used to be abundant and now it's um, sprayed with all of the kind of pesticides that we wouldn't even allow in Europe. But on these huge monocultures, the areas like sizes of, um, of whole regions of Europe. I mean, the scale is just really intense. So they go in. I mean, a local landowner is either persuaded or, or shot or bullied or something. Um, and then who even owns the land? Some kind of dodgy deal with some minister somewhere. But anyway, how they get the land or they just steal it. <laughs> because nobody's even looking because it's so big. It's like a huge forest, but they just go and, and do that and make a road and they just rip out these trees, which are so thousands and thousands of year old, like irreplaceable. Um, and also other kinds of forests because they're in Salta, there's kind of more um, small trees, a kind of drier forest, a bit like in uh, South Africa. So not so kind of rainforesty, but more kind of like a forest, like you'd see probably in Sweden or in Belgium actually. Um, but these trees, they just kind of, they can cut them down and they actually just deal with the timber. They just kind of set it off. But their main uh, goal is to, is to plant soy, um, industrial soy, um, either for biofuels. Um, um, so we, the petrol companies can claim to be green in Europe. So when we um, put a, a bit of petrol in that, if we got a car in the car, then it's got, it's got a little bit of biofuels that comes from trees. I mean, imagine like ancient forests, which is really nuts as well. Um, or they grow this soy, the huge amounts of soy. I mean, the, the quantity is enormous because um, it's easy. They just, and it's cheap and they, and they, uh, they ship it to Europe. And as I say, most of the uh, diets of the cows and the uh, pigs in um, uh, industrial farming in Europe um, are fed soy from deforested land. So when I was just talking with her and you go visit her and you see the, meet the brother who's, whose wife was killed doing that, you meet Gloria with her friends. They're trying to stand in front with a banner in front of these bulldozers and try to get awareness of like, this is what's happening to us. Why is this happening? And you know, the truth is, it ends up like thousands and thousands of her of the people in that region of Salta in north uh, northwest Argentina. Basically, they lost all their they lost their homes, they lost their land, just stolen from them, um, and what was left was turned into a desert because the water is contaminated. The local people are starting to get cancer um, because of the really they spray kind of gallons of pet. There's no controls essentially. Um, and um, so it becomes like unlivable. And as I say, whenever it rains, the forests and the soil normally would be absorbing the water like in Canada right now. But if you deforest in Canada, equally you end up with massive floods. Um, so it becomes unlivable. And so now there's like a half a million people as migrants or refugees around Buenos Aires, all totally 
homeless with no money because the land, the default, because of the consequences of this kind of this globalized supply chain for industrial farming. So, you know, when you get there and you see these people, it's just so shocking actually, um, because we all have these privileged lives. And I guess what we don't see, we don't really know again, but when you just meet people, they're all like us. All they want is like, you know, a happy life and to be left in peace really, to just do their thing. But um, it's, imagine it's like us living in our homes and suddenly somebody just comes and steals everything from us and just throws us on the street. I mean, we would find that really unacceptable. Yet, our, the companies that we buy things from, they, they've been perpetuating that for, for years. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that documentary. You know what? I'd love to go back and do more. And I was thinking about that the other day because it's such a hot issue still. I mean, it's so, and it still needs it. This, I was there um, almost 10 years ago when I filmed that first part. And I think it would be kind of interesting to go back to the same area I mean, I dread to see what I'm gonna what I'm gonna find, you know. I dread to think, but I think this this kind of thing needs to be exposed. And there are some amazing organisations like Global Witness who do go to support, um, you know, in a more kind of systematic way and record these testimonies of of, of these atrocities actually that are being committed around the world. I mean, not just in forest, but in mining and and all other supply chains. So we have our fancy lives in. Uh, buying you know but we don't know the stories behind behind all of the products all of the all of the things that we have in our homes that we use and I think it, it's not really fair anymore I mean that's a kind of basic idea of what motivates what motivates me it really is like what is that really fair anymore because we know I mean we know now right we know we can look at it online it's recorded online if we are able to have the time the luxury of time to look at it and to find it but it's not like we can close our eyes to it anymore. I mean, you kind of think about history historically. I mean, how did people accept colonialization and, and all the horrors that went on in the world, the wars and, and I mean, maybe they we just don't think about it, but today we can actually see that. It's all recorded. We can actually, and then to go there and to just see that it's not so different it's just all they want is like a good life and it's not like they were living in poverty to start with and that's they were having good lives with nice schools nice health care one of the most horrific things just to share with you that I saw there was that um, Coca-Cola had um, in, invested in the region and when they do invest in local regions when they're global creating markets around the world they um, um, divert the local water course um, so there's no more water for the people to drink, no more fresh water. So all of the kids I met, they'd all been given free Coca-Cola all their lives um, as a replacement, but they all had huge black holes where their front teeth should be. Breaks your heart. I mean, I, that's so horrific. I mean, I really, I was just so shocked. I mean, there's some really shocking things that you come across. Um, and I'm sure that wasn't the intention, <laughs> Um, but that's the consequence. Um, and so I don't know. I think there's, a, there's, there's time actually for some kind of accountability. I mean, actually, um, if we think about that, um, we know about this stuff now and some companies know there are consequences of diverting fresh water courses away from people's hometowns. Um, and there are consequences of buying stuff which has really horrific like supply chain or human rights abuses um, in it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all linked also to the question of this huge wave of migration which is happening, which 
Of course, if you build a system which is unjust, a trade system which relies on kind of kind of destroys or undermines people's opportunities to create their own livelihoods, um, of course, people are going to want to move. I mean, you and I would want to move, right? Well, we'd want to go where we can get a peaceful life and a decent education for our kids. Um, but ultimately, you know, a lot of trade policies actually are still um, very much undermining um, people's potential around the world to live just normal, decent lives. Um, and then everybody wonders why where everybody wants to move to Europe or everybody wants to move to, you know, somewhere safe. Um, it's because they can't work and they can't, um, you know, the climate's destroyed or the forests are destroyed or there's no, there's no chance to work. They somehow turned into kind of economic um, um, slaves by the, uh, by the globalized world. So we've created a really strange world in the last 20 or so years. And so, I hope, I mean, it's really good to work in the, the work I do. Um, I meet with some really inspiring people. Um, and I'm so happy you reached out to me to, to speak with me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks uh, a lot for uh, <clears throat> for joining, Joanna. And uh, I guess the, my final short question here would be, so before, uh, until uh, COP27, what will be your um, main uh, motivation here? And what, what, what questions will you uh, try to try to drive and progress within. Yeah, you know, what I really want to happen, how I see this year coming up is this has to be the year of action. This has to be the year where those business leaders, those sustainability kind of pioneers in the business uh, investment and uh, the private sector really stand out, work hand in hand with civil society, hand in hand with progressive governments, um, bringing everybody's voice to the table and really calling out um, those businesses which are uh, being disruptive um, to, to a better future and those governments actually being disruptive um, to a better future. So my real focus is going to be one on um, eliminating fossil fuel subsidies, having an announcement on that globally, um, to um, mobilizing and, and bringing together um, um, work of uh, different parts of civil society together with business uh, leaders who are committed and together with policymakers and governments and institutional people that are um, committed to really up the uh, ambition and up the urgency. Um, so to have annual targets, enough of 2030 targets or 2050, we need like what's going to happen by the end of the ne next year. We really need to be holding people to account. So I'm kind of optimistic. I really want to have a bigger voice for the global South um, and women um, at the policymaking table as well. You know, um, the way I see my business is, um, and I put that on my website, imagine a world where policy is debated in new ways. You know, all kinds of people need to be at the table. The voices of people who've traditionally been um, excluded from policymaking, people from the global South, indigenous peoples, and we need longer term perspective. You don't get a quality debate where you bring these issues like we talked about together, like food, like biodiversity and forests, like climate. You put them all together in one discussion and you try and figure out big picture thinking and kind of what are the step changes really are needed. So, you know, my work's going to continue, but I think the emphasis is definitely um, on more coalitions, more um, odd people who don't normally get together, 
bringing them together to really not bang their heads together because I'm a non-violent person, but to really get them to think out of their own boxes and to and to share that vision um, of and to to know to kind of also to continue that the idea of full of hope to keep messages optimistic and constructive. Um, and not to be uh, cynical, um, to, to, to really believe that a better world is possible and that we can, we can make it happen. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks, uh, Joanna, for all, all the, the beautiful work you're doing. And uh, it's, it's truly impacting the, uh, the bigger picture. So uh, thank you very much for that. And thanks for joining the podcast. Listen. Yeah, listen, it's my pleasure to to um, to be here. And, you know, activism is something everybody can get involved with. You know, it's all about, you know, feeling like you're you're being a bit useful somehow. So I'm kind of quite modest in my, my work as well. It's just like getting out of bed and feeling like you're really going to have a, a useful day. Um, so, but great to speak with you and have an amazing rest of the day. Um, and I look forward to um, to joining and listening to your other podcasts. Uh, I know you have great guests on, so thanks again for inviting me. Thanks, Joanna.